Father, we thank you for the saints who have gone before us. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have promised that it will make us wise unto salvation. And it has never, ever failed. We thank you that it is a light to our path. And so, Lord, we pray that we understand it, we use it properly as you intended. And the model that has gone on before us, that was demonstrated with your apostles, and Father, even your own Son and his use. We pray we would be aware that misuses of your word abound. For we know even the evil one himself used your word out of context to tempt your own son. And how important it is, Father, for us to hand it right, handle it rightly and carefully, but not to be afraid to give its full authority to our lives. And so we ask your blessing upon our time. We ask your blessing upon your word. It is taught and is preached even later this morning. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so in your, in your notes, um, like I said, I might have put too much. Though. That was from my notes. And I thought after last week, um, kind of redoing some of that, that it might be helpful to put a bit more in there. So some of this I'm going to read from. But this morning, uh, there is a reason that I chose Sola Scriptura in, in the After Darkness uh, essays. They start with total depravity. And um, I, I think it's great to start with total depravity, but you learn about total depravity by reading the scriptures. And so I thought, since we are going to rely on God's word for our theological grid, um, we must know how we use it and why we use it and why we would say it has ultimate authority. Uh, Martin Luther was, uh, he was an angry reformer because they say he had a diet of worms. Um, so uh, <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? I remember the first time I saw that, I'm like, what is that? Uh, he was called to answer for his heresies by the Catholic Church. And that council was called a diet, and it was held in worms, is how you say it. So it's... Uh, Anyway, the Diet of Worms, and this is probably one of his most famous quotes, and um, it's contested whether this is exactly how he said it or not. But uh, as one of the fathers of the Reformation, he says, Unless I'm convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. At different times, there were warring popes, uh, and then one pope replaces another, and He's talking about that. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Um, In our PCA Book of Church Order, when we talk about how we govern a church, one of our preliminary principles is that the church shall never, ever go above Scripture to bind the conscience of its members. Um, and uh, that is what uh, Luther is saying. I cannot go against my, against my conscience. But also putting out there, show me from the word. Show me from the word. Um, because it, it's dangerous for me to go 
against the word. I put in here, I think I wrote it in your notes too, this illustration of, of the uses of the word. <laughs> There's lots of misuses of the word of God. And sometimes, you know, that eight ball thing where you ask a question and you shake it and the eight ball kind of pops up the answer. You know, should I ask this girl out? And you shake up the eight ball and then the thing rolls around. It's like, no. Uh, I think sometimes people treat the word of God like that. Like it's, a, it's, this, it's almost like this magic book. Um, close your eyes, flip the pages, and put your finger down on a verse. And you, 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 you read that verse completely out of its context. Um, but the word of God uh, handed down from uh, Moses and the prophets um, is, is to be given full authority. Joshua 1.8, as they are getting ready to make conquest in the land, he says this book of the law that Moses had gone up and written, primarily the first five books of the Old Testament, we call that the Pentateuch, this book of the law, it shall not depart from your mouth. So it's interesting in the sermon today from Proverbs, it's exactly what the father is telling the son. Watch your speech, guard your words. Uh, shall not depart from your mouth. You'll meditate on it day and night. You may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Um, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Jesus called to himself in Matthew 10, the 12 disciples. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. The name of the 12 apostles were these. Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. I want to remember that the apostle, and we'll, we'll talk about apostolic, um, the apostolic use of the scriptures, the apostolic pattern. And so if you notice in Presbyterian and Reformed churches, we don't have apostles, um, you know, sometimes you'll see it in different churches, like Apostle so-and-so is coming to visit, and Apostle this is coming to visit. And um, the reason we don't take that title, Apostle, is because it would appear from the Scriptures and from Matthew, uh, and even from Paul. Uh, that's, the, that's that next section. I, I won't read all of that. But it's Paul defending, I am an Apostle. And it was really important for Paul to have that designation. Because at the time when the word is going out, when the, when the churches are being planted all across Asia, um, there is an issue with no printing press. <laughs> uh, there is an issue of authority. And so, and it would seem wherever they went to plant, behind them would come Judaizers or other, other forms, other sects of uh, religion, uh, and try to undermine and part of the way the Judaizers undermined was using the Old Testament, using the Old Testament in a way that the apostles had not used the Old Testament. So um, when we say apostolic, when I use that word apostolic, it refers to the 12, refers to the 12 that Jesus designated as apostles. Um, some people argue that after Judas hung himself, remember, if you remember this, the disciples cast lots they said we have to have a number. We have to have that complete number. Twelve was important. You know, it's a number of completeness, and and so the lots fell to Matthias. Some people argue that they went, they they should have waited because Paul was to be, <laughs> the twelfth apostle. Paul was the one that God would choose 
that Jesus himself would call, that Jesus himself would disciple and become that 12th apostle. And it is interesting, you don't really hear anything about Matthias. He just, we, uh, we don't know really what happened to him. Uh, flip to the Galatians 1 passage. This is him talking about how, how, uh, how it is that I am an apostle. And it was really important for the apostle Paul uh, to, to, to have, for, for his authority and for his communion with the other apostles, that, that he was given the gospel. He was given the truth. All his life and all the training from the Old Testament uh, was beautifully, beautifully woven into the gospel. And, um, and so he is talking about here his, his discipleship, his choice uh, in Galatians um, because people are attacking his teaching. After 14 years, I went to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. So he, he went to the other apostles and said, this is what I have been taught through divine revelation, through the years. It was about 17 years from his conversion. Right? Remember, 17 years from his conversion before he really started his ministry. Uh, there was a lot of training <laughs> that went on out, 14 years out in the, or three years out in the desert, uh, 14 other years before he came. Anyway, uh, the, the Judaizers were coming and saying, you know, you, uh, in order for you to be accepted, you needed to be circumcised, you needed to keep some of the feasts and the things that were in the Old Testament. So he's answering that. Even Titus, who's with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out... <laughs> it's not sour freedom, sorry. That was uh, <laughs> our freedom uh, that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we didn't yield, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So you get a sense that the gospel for him, it's, it's a, it is a... Um, uh, it is a... A, a teaching that, that has to be preserved and protected. And those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles." When James and Cephas, who's Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So the Apostle Paul, uh, very, very important, that that title of Apostle, that that inclusion with the Twelve, uh, gave him authority in the churches. Um, so when we say sola scriptura, the Latin means by scripture alone. Sometimes I'm not careful and I just say scripture alone. But really by scripture alone is better and I'll explain that in a minute. Um, what do we mean by scripture alone? Well, there's, there, and, and why is it necessary that you and I take time to talk about it? Don't we all think that the Bible is the word of God? Um, you know. It used to be in the early days of our denomination, um, 
there, there was an evangelism program called Evangelism Explosion. And it was interesting, when, when Evangelism Explosion came out to the churches, uh, the first people that you would visit, and I was on some of these teams, were people who visited your church. So someone comes visit your church, they fill out an info card, usually that afternoon. Sunday afternoon, you meet, you go through the cards, you pray for the Lord to um, open hearts, and you call the people and say, hey, we'd like to come by um, and drop off a gift and, and talk to you about your visit. What we found, uh, and, and sometimes those didn't work, and so we would just choose a neighborhood, and we'd knock on the doors. What we found is, um, so that would have been 80s, 1980s, there was still a real sense that the Bible's God's word, uh, at least in our country. So I could tell someone, this is what the Bible says. And they're like, oh, really? Wow. You know? and, and almost a, a, a cultural acceptance that, you know, we put our hand on the Bible. We, we, we have it, you know, in the, in the court, they swear on the Bible um, that, that, it's, that it's true. Not so much today. Um, and one of the reasons we study Sola Scriptura is because the way the scriptures have been handled has led to a devaluation of its authority. And, and, and so it, it's one of the problems that we've had with translations. It's one of the problems we've had with how to use it. We have so many denominations, right? And, and so many different views of this and that, and that's your view, and that's your interpretation. Um, and, and so what's the proper use according to the apostles, which the reformers were absolutely trying to get the church back to? Um, some of the misuses, the reader makes their own interpretation of the scripture as authoritative. Uh, uh, you've probably been in Bible studies where someone reads a text and say, what does that mean to you? I have been in those, and someone said, this is what it means to me. And I'm like, it can't mean that to you. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, it probably wasn't a good question. Uh, this, this, is what this, this is what this means. Um, every person becomes their own pope. Um, scripture plus, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, out of context, you know how much I hate that Philippians 4, sometimes not even the full verse. You know, I can do all things. I've seen that on t-shirts. You know, the Bible says I can do all things, you know. Uh, it reminds me of the Key and Peele skit where the, uh, where the pro athlete tells kids that you can do anything. You can do anything. And then the next scene is some kid that you know, fell out of the window. And he's like, I didn't mean anything. <laughs> uh, kids, you can literally fly. You can look that up on your own afterwards. Um, uh, so... The intended uses of the scriptures, or uh, the overarching question for us, what or who will have ultimate authority over me? That, that, that is, you have to ask yourself that question, and you have to be reminded of it. What has ultimate power over me? Where do I go at an impasse? Well, where do I go just to make sure that the path I'm on, the way I am living is right, the way I'm responding to people is right? What or who will have ultimate authority over me? If Scripture is to have that place, then how is it to be applied? How is it to be used? In our historical context, we have four traditions. Um, tradition one, uh, one source. Uh, and this was 
what we would say the apostolic tradition was. This is how the apostles used the word. And so it's absolutely wonderful that we have, especially in Matthew's gospel, but we have Jesus himself using the scriptures. Uh, going back to the Old Testament, not saying, that's a different God. I'm the son and I'm much happier. I'm a lot more fun and I'm a lot more welcoming. Uh, and wait till the Holy Spirit comes. And you won't even need the word again. I mean, again, that's how some Christians live, as if it's that Old Testament God. We don't want anything to do with him. He was really angry. And um, we want, you know, this, this, this Jesus is, is different. It's wonderful, especially Matthew, like I said, how often uh, Jesus is referring to the Old Testament. Um, uh, so the tradition one, there was one source. Uh, it was the content of Scripture and tradition as identical. Now, it's important we use that word tradition. Tradition is the way that the apostles used the Scripture. So if you read through 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, the pastoral epistles, those are really good to us because the Apostle Paul on his deathbed is saying, here's, here's how you, Timothy, you've been entrusted with this doctrine. He uses sound words, wise sayings. You have been entrusted with this. Um, and and you, you're, you're going to have to entrust it because you're going to die. You're going to have to trust it into reliable people that will be trusted to keep this uh, this doctrine, um, and so you know, we, when we have the Apostles' Creed, you know, early creedal formula before the printing press is out there. When we have the fish, you know, the, the little fish, that's an actual creed. The fish is a creed. You know, you see that uh, ichthus, those Greek letters, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. So that that is a that's like a creed that the early Christians would say. This is what I hold to. This is what I believe. Um, and, and so that's, that's the one source. Um, so for decades after Jesus' death, the apostles held that. They had councils. They met. Part of what we were reading is uh, Paul going to the apostles and saying, I, I get from Scripture that circumcision has no value. In fact, if I do it, I might be sending the wrong message. Am I right, brothers? Uh, is this, is this do, I, do I read it right? Uh, the gospel that was entrusted to me, I think this is how we play it out. And they're like, yes, absolutely. Then the apostle Paul even goes a step further when he sees uh, Peter with the Jews, drawing away from Gentiles. What does he say to Peter? He doesn't say, you're racist. He says, you are acting out of accord of the gospel. Peter, you're acting out of accord of this, this doctrine uh, with how we have, uh, by our tradition, interpreted the scriptures. Peter, you're living out of accord of that. You are, you are treating brothers based upon externalities as more important, as more valuable than the other. So tradition zero. Uh, in, in your notes, I think it says this. Um, preach for decades, eventually codified in the canon of the New Testament along with the Old Testament, is the sole source of inspired revelation. And it is to be interpreted by the church within the context of the apostolic rule of faith. I'll take my watch off, see where we are here. Um, we will get to that apostolic rule of faith in a few moments. Tradition two, 
two sources, scripture and tradition, are two equal sources of divine revelation and supplementary sources of divine revelation. Scripture and tradition are not identical. Uh, tradition three, we call that the living magisterium, the teaching authoritative office of the church. We have seen it in um, uh, papal infallibility. So what the Pope says, ex cathedra, what the Pope says as the Pope, for instance, is, is uh, as authoritative as the scriptures. Um, this uh, tradition three, tradition two, is what the reformers were angry about. It's what the reformers were saying. We have to get back. I was going to read about John uh, Wycliffe. You, that might be a name that's more popular to you if you've been in churches where someone from Wycliffe comes and uh, they're raising money to translate the New Testament into some language in some small village in South America. Uh, they're called Wycliffe after John Wycliffe because he made the first English translation uh, of the scriptures. Now, it wasn't a great translation because it was a translation from the Latin. So you had uh, the Vulgate, which was the, the, the Roman Catholic uh, translation of the scriptures into Latin. So that was taken from the various uh, biblical languages, mostly Hebrew and Greek. Um, and translated into Latin, and so then he translated from the Latin into English. Um, one of the reasons that the KJV was uh, updated eventually was not just because of English language change, but because of greater documents, uh, better manuscripts, especially of the book of Hebrews. So parts of the King James Version were also just translated from the Vulcate. I'm on a rabbit trail, sorry about that. Uh, tradition three, and um, yeah, so the, the, the Pope, and that, that was pretty much after the Council of Trent, we see that. Uh, tradition zero, solo scriptura, and it, it was, it was uh, a result of a couple things. It was a result of radical reformers who, again, when, when we see in theology these pendulum swings, right? So uh, as Reformed Presbyterians, I've always said, we're going to get to see the Lord and the Holy Spirit's going to say, why were you PCA folks so scared of me? <laughs> you know, why were you so afraid? And I'm like, well, there are lots of crazy people out there claiming you told them this and you told them that and you were, you know, and so anyway. Uh, but Tradition Zero was too far of a swing in a sense. It, it is saying you, as you read the scriptures, are the ultimate authority. Um, your, your understanding of what you read uh, doesn't have to stand up against anybody else, any council, any church. Uh, it's you and Jesus and the Bible. Um, and, and so we see that a lot today. Um, but, it, but it was part of that Reformation swing. And again, it was these councils have acted on behalf of God and they've led us down a wrong path, I'm not going to trust councils anymore. So you might see it sometimes. I haven't seen it recently, but you used to see sometimes on a church billboard, it'll say, no creed but Christ. And some of those churches will also say, standing firm on the KJV. Um, and and it, it, again, it's this response to, um, or even the, this, the, the kind of the hatred of organized religion, you know, that, that they have taken advantage of people. They haven't policed their, their clergy for, for whatever reason 
it's me and the Bible, and uh, I think the Bible's telling me this, and my reading is not wrong. So um, that process from tradition one to zero, um, I put some notes in there, was committed to the early church by Jesus himself. His content was communicated orally, eventually written down in the Gospels. Uh, if you read Luke, it's, it's an interesting thing that Luke, he explains at the beginning how he got his gospel. You know, it, it was good for me uh, to, to go and confirm with the witnesses and the disciples the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm presenting to you uh, that. So that's what I mean by the tradition and the written word were combined um, and how, how it was dealt with. So uh, then the New Testament was inscripturated inscripturation of the apostolic proclamation the same as that which had been handed down orally. And so councils met to put that canon together. So you may not know this, but there are lots of extra-biblical gospels. Um, the Apocrypha, for instance, you know, sometimes I would have kids come to church and, and they, had a, they had a Bible and had all these other books that the Protestants didn't have. And they're like, hey, what's this? You know? Um, and I'm like, well, the reformers um, didn't believe that those books met the criteria of being holy scripture. So um, that canon and the idea of canonicity, what we call canonicity, the idea of saying these books belong and these don't belong, um, dates way back to the Old Testament, the, the very, very beginning of the scriptures being written down. I might have told you this before, but one of the, you know, if I had more room, I, I'd bring my Hebrew Bible and it's so awesome because each page has a number of consonants. Each page, uh, there's the middle consonant of the page. And so when the scribe would write it down from page to page, they would count the consonants in the middle. And if, it was, if they made mistakes, they would start over. Um, they knew, they knew what I am writing down, what I am transcribing is vitally important. Um, I, 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 I do not want to make a mistake. Uh, there was not even a hint at this point that there would be a second source of revelation apart from the scriptures. So when um, we deny the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, and some of the Catholic apocryphal books, um, that's why. I said the Old Testament was handled differently. Um, it, it was handled differently in the sense that um, those are the writings of the actual prophets. And so the prophets didn't kind of meet together and, and kind of check each other's work. But the beauty of it is Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the minor prophets, none of them contradict each other. None of them paint a picture of God that's different than the other or how he deals with people. They're, they're all the same. Over hundreds of years, you have people writing about the relationship God offers to his people, and it's always the same. They always stand in line. Um, so this tradition one lasted almost to the 12th century. Then in the 12th century, there, there, was a, there had developed an allegorical method of interpreting the scriptures. Um, did I put in there, does it say after allegorical method, does it say perhaps the most in famous instance? Is that printed in your notes, or did I take that out? I don't know what page that would be. Um, 
Anyway, the parable of the Good Samaritan, for instance, in the allegorical view, the man who robbed is Adam, Jerusalem is paradise, Jericho is the world, the priest is the law, the Levites are the prophets, the Samaritan is the Christ, the donkey is Christ's physical body, which bears the burden of the wounded man. So each, each item had this kind of allegorical meaning. Now, it doesn't mean that they're not allegories in the scripture, and it doesn't mean that we can apply things allegorically, but, but um, it, was a, it was a method Almost like we see today, sometimes when people take numerology out of the scriptures and they'll have some new book and it's like, we're going to, what was the year that we had all the blood moons? Was that 2015? 2015, 2014? I wasn't here, but were people going nuts about the blood moons? No, they were, Scotty. You remember that? Like, yeah, like the blood moons. It's Jesus is coming back, you know, and and they could find all these secret messages somehow, uh, you know, um, yeah. So it, it, it's some of that stuff was going on. And so there was a call back to what, we, what they would say is the apostolic method of interpretation of the scriptures. And so you will find part of that is um, Jesus. Uh, do I have that in here? Uh, somewhere I have that in there uh, where he talks um, to the, the men on the, on the road to Emmaus. And he says, beginning with Moses and the prophets. So again, just a, a, a beautiful confirmation from our risen Lord that Moses and all the prophets are speaking about him. And that's how it says, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them from the scriptures everything concerning himself and how the Messiah must die. You know, I can imagine just that, that walk, that two-hour walk, and Jesus getting to Isaiah 53 or something like that, by your stripes you're healed. You know, walking along and, and, the, and, the, and the, the marks on his back. Um, so that, that's what the reformers were calling us back to. Um, however, allegory is a beautiful literary device. Anybody who has read John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress uh, would, would say, what an amazing work. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of skip over. Oh, man, I'm already done, aren't I? Um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pick this up next week. Um, keep, keep these notes, and if you want to kind of read through them on your own. As I sent out that email, I, I thought I probably should have pushed the, that, that homework assignment back. So where I've said, you know, read those first four chapters of Deuteronomy. I think you know enough now about what we're talking about with sola scriptura. How in Deuteronomy is it demonstrated that the word of God is important, that it has authority? Um, so I just, I just went online and just printed up those first four chapters. And I think it'd be kind of cool for you to stick a highlighter and like, oh, He's talking about the importance of keeping this law. He's, he's telling them, well, here's, here's the authority that it has over us. Here's why we do this. Here's where it came from. So anyway, um, we may or may not have time to go over that each week, but I think it'd be a good exercise. I find myself in my own Bible readings always in the, in the margins. I'll underline something, and I might just put uh, sola Christus or sola de o gloria, uh, just as this, this is this reminder that all of the scriptures are speaking here. Um, anybody have any questions about what we talked about so far?
Scotty. I didn't. I didn't cover it, and I don't know. Anybody know? David, do you know? You know where the five solos were kind of put together? Or did it just kind of evolve? Yeah, Uriah, do you know? Yeah. Oh! <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, all right. Well, um, 